0: How many of you enjoy a good mystery, a good novel, a good TV show? Terry and I are big fans of uh, the TV show Castle. Anybody else watch Castle? It's kind of a fun show. It's fun to be able to watch a show like that where there's lots of plot twists and turns and you try to get ahead of the main characters to solve the mystery before they do, right? Where you kind of look at the husband and go, wait a second, he's way too confident. He's got to be guilty, right? And the interest in those shows is the fact that they solve the mystery. You wouldn't watch it if they didn't solve the mystery. If Beckett and Castle walks in today and says, you know, another, another bad week, guys. We yet again didn't solve a mystery. Oh, well, I'm not watching that show. I need answers, right? Well, it might surprise you to know that the Bible is actually filled with a few mysteries of its own. But a divine mystery is different. A divine mystery is something that is beyond the limits of human understanding. In other words, it cannot be solved apart from divine revelation. God must disclose something that we cannot discover on our own. In our passage this morning, Paul is going to speak to a mystery that was revealed to him. And what's important is within that mystery is something that profoundly speaks to you and I. And that's what we'll look at together this morning. So if we could just take a little time to go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we always want to be humbled as we open up your word and see what it says about who you are, what you've done, and how we respond. And so give us soft hearts this morning. Protect us from distractions of things happening around us, things going on this past week and the weeks ahead. And just center our hearts on you so that we can hear clearly the truths that you want to speak to us for our good and for your glory. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you would, turn to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. We'll pick up where we left off last week. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote Before in brief. And by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of which I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. The first thing I want you to notice is that Paul didn't discover this mystery. It was revealed to him. In other words, he didn't come up with these answers. These answers were given to him. And Paul is referring specifically to that encounter with the risen Christ that he had on the road to Damascus, when very literally the risen Christ stood in his way as he was on his way to persecute the church, to persecute Christians. And Jesus confronted Saul at that time was his name. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul goes on to describe in his own words what took place that day and the events that followed? I want you to look at that with me. Turn to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. I think Mark and his group might have looked at this passage this morning, but we'll look at it again. Galatians chapter 1, verse 11. Again, this is Paul talking about that experience that he had when he was confronted by the risen Christ. Verse 11. For I would have you know, brethren that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it. I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure. I tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen. Being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions, but when he had set him, me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. This is how Paul became a preacher to the ones he once persecuted. The message he proclaimed was one that was spoken to him directly by the risen Christ. This is where Paul learned how Jesus ultimately fulfilled all that God had promised. God gave him the answers that he could not have discovered on his own. In fact, he was headed in the very opposite direction. What's interesting, this made me think of, I mentioned this book, Killing Christians that gives testimonies of those in the Middle East who have come to faith in Christ. And, and we would all understand that they grow, grow up in an environment that's very hostile to Christianity, right? They're headed, in, much like Paul, in the opposite direction. But would you believe that for many of them, part of their testimony is being confronted by the risen Christ in a dream where he reveals who he is and what he came to do on their behalf? And so even today, I believe that that Jesus is revealing himself so that people may understand who he is and what he came to do, turning people who are heading in one direction to choose to follow him in faith. But I want you to notice that this mystery that Christ has revealed, according to verse five, was not known by other generations. It says, which in other generations was not made known. To the sons of men. I think it's important to to understand what Paul means here. As we've already learned, the plan of God was in place before the world began. The second verse of Romans, chapter 1, says that the gospel was promised beforehand through the prophets and the scriptures, speaking specifically of the Old Testament. In the book of Galatians, we learn that it was a message, a gospel message that was meant for all nations. Let me read that one to you. Chapter 3, verse 8, just listen to what it says. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand all the way back to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with with Abraham, the believer. So God's promise of salvation was made known from the very beginning. The mystery was how exactly would he carry through with that promise? How exactly would he fulfill that promise of salvation for the world? And what was the magnitude of that promise once it was accomplished? That was the mystery. And so until that day that mystery would be revealed, God's people would have to trust him even when they didn't have all the answers. They had to believe that God was faithful to his promise, even when that mystery remained. So, when Noah was told to build an ark in order to protect him and his family from the coming judgment of God's wrath through a flood, you had to believe God. When he said simply, Noah, you're going to have to trust me on this one. Abraham, when he was in this foreign land and God comes to him and says, I want you to go to a new land, a a land that you've never been to before, but it's a land that I've promised to give my people that will come from you. Abraham had to believe God. When God said, Abraham, you're going to have to trust me on this one. Moses, when he led God's people out of slavery from Egypt and then to the Red Sea, He had to believe God when God told him to cross the Red Sea, and I'm sure he had all kinds of questions in his mind, but ultimately God was saying, Moses, you're going to have to trust me on this one. Even before the mystery was fully revealed, salvation was based on faith alone. Faith that God made a promise and that he would be faithful to carry it through, that he would make a way. What Paul is telling the Ephesians is that Jesus Christ is the promise of salvation fulfilled. He is the way. He's the truth. He's the life. And no one comes to Father except through him. Jesus is the mystery revealed. So everything that God did beforehand ultimately pointed to and was fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is ultimately the one who protects us from the judgment of God's wrath. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus is ultimately the one who leads us to the promise of eternal life. He tells his disciples, I am preparing a place for you, and I will come again so that you may be where I am also. Jesus is ultimately the one who delivers us from slavery to sin. He tells us in Scripture that you're no longer, sin is no longer your master. (laughs) Scripture says if Jesus has set you free, then you are free indeed. As Paul tells the Corinthians, all the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. He is the mystery revealed. He is the means by which God ultimately fulfills the promise of salvation for the world. Just as the Old Testament saints had to trust in God, we're really no different. God is telling us, you've got to trust me on this one. You're saved. By grace, through faith alone. For by grace you've been saved, through faith. That not of yourselves, not as a result of works, that anyone should boast. It's a gift from God. Trust me. Trust me on this one. Paul goes on in verse 6 to describe the magnitude of what was accomplished in this gift of salvation. Look at what he says. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Our reconciliation through Christ didn't just reform broken people. It made something new, a new creation, a a new humanity, a people redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ where there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, a multicultural, multiracial people of God. Those who are one in Christ. And since that's true, we stand on common ground as fellow heirs. We share equally in the inheritance of God. Scripture tells us that we are co-heirs with Christ. And what they're communicating to us is that the righteousness that belongs to Christ has been credited equally and fully to everyone who believes. We are fellow heirs, sharing equally in that inheritance. It also says that we are fellow members of his body. We learned last week how we are being fitted together, shaped to be a people of God with whom he dwells. Fellow members of that body, placed in the body just as he desires, empowered by the Spirit to to contribute something for the common good of his people. We are fellow partakers of the promise, that promise God made to take our heart of stone and to make it soft, to make it receptive to the work of his spirit so that our lives are transformed, that our minds are renewed so we can know what is good and right and true. That's the magnitude of the miracle of God's grace. And even though Paul is in prison for proclaiming this message, he's telling the people in Ephesus, it's worth it. It's worth it. He could think of no greater privilege than to preach and proclaim the message of the gospel. His goal was to be a good steward of the grace that God had given him, to be strengthened by the power he did not possess on his own, to proclaim the good news that had been graciously revealed to him. Look at how he continues in verse 8. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. I think you can see clearly that that Paul was not out to make a name for himself. He wasn't trying to impress people or, or win their approval in order to validate his worth. Instead, he consistently was humbled to minister to a people he once persecuted. To proclaim a Messiah that he once denied. To be humbled from a pride of all that he'd accomplished. We saw some of that in Galatians. There's another passage in Philippians. You don't have to turn there, but it's in Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. Listen to what he says. If anyone has in mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal of persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is in the law found blameless. Quite a resume. But then he goes on to say in verse 7, But whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul is deeply aware of his own unworthiness. And of God's amazing grace. He's not made of motivated by what he can do for God. He's inspired because of what God has done through him. The least of all saints. He can speak from his own experience when he proclaims the excellencies, the unfathomable riches of knowing Christ. Christ because of the good works that God prepared beforehand for him to to walk in the midst of, growing in the knowledge of, of God, growing in the understanding of who he is, which leads to even greater worship and awe and respect. In fact, the redemptive work of God in the church is of such magnitude that even the angels watch and learn. In fact, look at verse 10 again. In order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church. Listen to who? To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. See, we have a far bigger audience than we probably ever really appreciate. The church displays the manifold wisdom of God, not just to the world around us, but even to the heavenly places. All of creation groans, waiting eagerly for the redemption of God which is to come. And the church reveals a sample of that reconciliation that is ultimately promised and will be fulfilled. The angels watch the church and learn of the grace of God and the miracle of transformed lives. And as a result, they worship the God from whom that grace has come. The mystery revealed to Paul has now been revealed to us and provides answers for what our heart longs for most. The church is not just a part of God's plan. The church is the culmination of God's plan that was in place from the very beginning. Who we are should reflect the magnitude of what he's accomplished. Our lives, listen to this, our lives should lead the heavenly realms in worship. Isn't that amazing? Look at how he continues in verse 11. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart in my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. Remember, this was a plan that was in place before the world began. It was made possible by the sin-conquering death and the life-giving resurrection of Jesus. He is the reason the church exists. He is the reason we have confident access to God. The writer of Hebrews does a great job of describing what this is all about. I want you to turn and look at this one with me. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. In describing this confident access that we have to God, the writer of Hebrews put this this way. He says, Let us therefore draw near with confidence to To the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Notice, we come to God in a time of need. We are needy people, right? He provides things that we do not possess on our own. And He meets us with mercy because here's the reality we all fall short. Nobody measures up, but we don't have to because we don't gain confidence because of what we've accomplished. We've accomplished nothing in comparison to what Christ has done for us. We come based in the confidence of what he has done on our behalf. And what we have has been made possible because of him. Go over to, since you're in Hebrews, go to chapter 10, verse 19, this whole concept this is developed even further listen to how the author unfolds how this confidence is based not on what we've accomplished but what was done for us verse 19 since therefore brethren we have confidence to enter the holy place why because of the blood of jesus by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Because he who has promised is faithful. Our confidence is in he who, Who has promised because he is faithful, even when we are not. The faithfulness of of God is why Paul says, Don't be discouraged by by the tribulations that I'm going through on your behalf. When bad things happen, don't assume that something's going wrong. In fact, very often it means that something's going right. Paul says that Jesus said, In this world, you're going to have tribulations. You're going to have trouble. He says, they persecuted me. They will persecute those who follow me. But he says, do not fear, for I have overcome the world. And he who is promised is faithful. The suffering we endure doesn't compare to the glory that is promised when that kingdom is ultimately and completely fulfilled. We get a glimpse of that in 2 Corinthians. Let me just read to you. This is a familiar verse. But 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17 says this. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Now, I don't know about you, but this is one of those mysteries that I have to accept by faith. Because... There are people in this world, and, and most far greater than me, who are going through some of the most difficult situations. We encounter things that, plain and simple, we don't have answers for. We don't completely understand. That mystery still remains. But we've got to trust. When God tells us, you can trust me on this one, because he who has promised is faithful. All that is wrong in the world, he says, one day will be made right. I don't have all the answers to how that mystery is ultimately fulfilled, but I can believe in the one who does, knowing that he who is promised is faithful. Until then, we are called to live in the unfathomable riches of knowing Christ, to put our trust in him. So let me encourage you not to lose sight of that. There's a lot going on in our world, isn't there? There's a lot going on in individual lives right here in this church. And very often, we don't have all the answers. Many of those mysteries still remain. So let me remind you, you can go to the throne of grace with confidence. He who is promised is faithful. So tell him those worries and fears, those things that you don't have answers to, because he does. And when you hear from him and he says to you, Linda, trust me, I've got this one, then let it go. Let him who has the answers have the problems. Trust in him. Be content with being a good steward of the grace that has been given to us. Live in the unfathomable riches of what he has made possible. And know that the, the church is ultimately the, the storehouse of those treasures until he comes again. Our lives should be leading the heavenly realms in worship. That's an incredible thought to consider. And, and I don't know about you, but when I hear that, I, I think to myself, well, what exactly does that look like? What does a a God-honoring life look like that that leads the angels in worship of that God whom I serve? That's probably a sermon in and of itself. (laughs) But I do think that we can take a lot from what we've already walked through in Ephesians already. To glorify God means that we are faithful stewards of God's grace. We accept it in faith. And we give it away in love. We glorify God when we do that. We glorify God when we walk in the good works that he prepared beforehand. Surrendering our own selfish desires and aligning our lives with his good and perfect will. We glorify God when we live within the household of faith. When we invest ourselves into the lives of this body. The evidence of the miracle of reconciliation that he promised. Fitting us together, rounding off those sharp edges so that he could build us up to be the people with whom he dwells. We glorify God when we live in unity through humility. Each of us deeply aware of our own unworthiness and understanding that we are all equal recipients of God's grace. We glorify God when we proclaim the mystery that he has been made known. Made known to us that we have a privilege to make known to the world. We glorify God when we live in the hope of his calling, the riches of his grace, the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. That's all the things that we've learned through our Ephesians study in just three chapters so far. And that's what it means. To glorify God and how we live. One of the things that I, I want you to hear very clearly. God hasn't made this complicated. He doesn't want us to be burdened by doing great things for God. He's already done great things in us. He just wants us to be faithful to the grace that was given to us. To live out of the riches of what he made possible. To walk in the good works that he prepared beforehand. That's what leads the heavenly realms in worship. When we are the good steward of the grace that he has given us. Do you see the difference? The heavenly realms are not impressed with Burt Frank or Todd Sapisa or Mark Hardy. They're not worshiping God because of how great these men and women are in this place. They're worshiping God because these are people who are unworthy of God's grace, who have been lavished with God's grace, who live in God's grace, and whose lives give glory to what God has done miraculously in their lives for the praise and glory of his name. The focus is on him, not us. We don't do great things for God. God does great things in us, and that's why he gets the praise. Our responsibility, Paul makes very clear. It's not complicated. Be a good steward of God's grace, which has been given to you. That's it. That's what we're called to. So Let's be faithful to that together. Amen? Father, we are grateful in that promise that you've given us. And I don't know about others in the room this morning, but that's a heavy burden off my shoulders when I realize that you don't expect me to do incredible things for you. But instead, I'm supposed to be a recipient of the grace that was given and just be faithful to the incredible things that you've done in me, through me, for your glory. Father, help us to live that truth out, to be the people that you've called us to be, to to live out the miracle of reconciliation that the church displays, not just to the world around us, but even to the heavenly realms. And may our lives be lived in a way that they worship you for the goodness of your grace towards us who believe. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.